Hey, it's James. I'm filling in for Kathy this week because today's episode is personal, and that also means there will be some swearing along the way. Anyway, I want to play you part of a conversation that I had with my mom on election night. Oh, they want a strong man. They don't care about the background. Somehow the American people, they want to pick, okay, uh, we're sick and tired of politician, you know, professional politicians, so we like somebody else. They don't look at the bottom or inside of the person, how much they know, how honest they are, you know, whether they're not telling the truth. They don't think about it. They're just very simple. If they just like it, they just bought it. She's telling me her answer to a question that I've heard over and over again over the past four years, and then even more as the ballots were being counted on November 3rd, 2020. What in the fuck could possibly make someone vote for that guy? It's like a showmanship. They act like they are so strong. They are a strong leader for the whole country. She also told me why she didn't vote for the Republican candidate for president. We don't think, you know, he's going to pit for the office. We're never, ever going to pick up movie stars. People don't know anything about the politics. How do they going to manage it? How do they going to fit into their office? So it should be people who has been experienced in government affairs. My mom is 72 years old, and on the phone, she wasn't talking about Donald Trump. She was talking about Ronald Reagan, who was elected to the Oval Office in 1980. That election was the first time my mom could vote as a U.S. citizen, after she immigrated here to work as a nurse. And she joined the 36% of Californians who voted for the Democrat, Jimmy Carter. To her, the choice seemed obvious. I was really, really surprised how they could vote for the Lincoln. He has no experience at all. I mean, he has, he was the governor, but his main business is a movie star. So we didn't think, oh, he should be like as a president. When I was in college, I spent a few years studying political science with a focus on regime change. That basically means I have a bachelor's degree in how nations become democracies or how nations become dictatorships. My mom, who watches CNN and local news and has voted in every election for 40 years, was able to summarize most of what I've learned about America's political dysfunction in about four minutes. And once most Republican president ended, they lived huge debt. And then when Democratic take over, they try to recover. They try to pay back and try to turn economic better. It just keep going back and forth, back and forth. The same thing, like when Clinton became president, he paid, paid out all the debts. He left like a surplus. But after that, if the George Bush took over, the same thing. Ended up with all the debt. It's exactly the same thing what the Trump is doing right now. So who's gonna pay? Eventually, you guys are gonna pay. Next generation has to pay if we cannot pay. So that's what I've been noticing going back and forth, back and forth. That's the state. I mean, the history of uh, all the presidents in the United States in the last forty years. If we keep ending up with the same cycle, do you think that the system is working? No. What do you think is wrong? They should have some changes in constitution and electoral system. This is totally wrong. None of the world, the other countries, they don't have a system like United States. Stupid system like 
even you have uh, millions and millions of people in like, California, New York, there are only two senators. And there are small population like Indiana, in Iowa, they still have two senators. That's wrong. As we talked about the parallels between past and present elections, I couldn't help but feel like she was confirming the ways that our democratic system is <laughs> pretty undemocratic. It's been biased by design against the will of the majority, against the rights of the powerless from the start of our nation's founding. Having seen California when it was still the land of Reagan, she thinks that demographic shifts in states like Texas, Pennsylvania, and Virginia could lead to long-term change. And she's putting her faith in younger generations. Right now, it's pretty obvious when you compare it to 10 years ago, 20 years ago, people wake up. Now they're more participating. They're more communicating. And some people try to listen better or more than, oh, we didn't realize that. Most of white people say, oh, we didn't realize. Maybe we didn't know their history. We didn't know their cultures. So people are more waking up these days, which is good. So it's probably better when your generation comes in 10 years. I hope so. Well, my generation will already be in past middle age in 10 years. Yeah, but when you guys turn 45, around 45, 50, that's what I'm talking about. Our generation will be disappear. So eventually, it will turn out better than you know, what I've been expecting. Something we couldn't do. This is self-evident, where we challenge the narratives about where we're from, where we belong, and where we're going by telling Asian America's stories. In the days right after November 3rd, 2020, when it still wasn't clear who our next president would be, I called over a dozen people from different backgrounds and different citizenship status to see how they were doing, ask about their experiences with voting, and find out whether they saw the same kind of repeating cycle that my mom and I were talking about. I ended up going on kind of a journey through my own cynicism about electoral politics and whether the American people are ready and willing to go past beating Trump. And I ended up talking with a few folks from the youngest generation of voters in this election who had their own frustrations and their own hopes about how to move forward. But first, I want to share a little bit of the raw, unfiltered uncertainty and conflicted feelings that I heard when I called people up on November 4th and November 5th. Not to talk about Trump versus Biden, but about the more systemic problems that would stick with us after all the votes were counted. Being black didn't necessarily get worse under Donald Trump. And there was a gang of black people who got murdered by cops and by race soldiers. Under Obama's watch, there was no consequences for these bodies being taken, these lives being taken from us. There hasn't been any punishment under Donald Trump either. And there's not going to be any punishment under Joe Biden. I mean, that's what I think. Like, I'm at the point in my life where I don't care about anything else. Where I'm just like, when are you going to pay me back for all the work that, that my ancestors did? You know, when are you going to pay people back for all of the redlining and disinvestment that you've done in, in black neighborhoods? When are you going to give us what we deserve? We built this country. So, like, yeah, of course I can decide an election. The black vote always decides an election. But what does it mean? 
We're still waiting for returns as we're recording this. And as of now, a lot of hopes are being pinned on like Michigan (laughs) and Arizona. And I'm just thinking about like all of the things that they said, they, the big they, said to us during the Democratic primary when we were pushing for more progressive candidates. And they were like, they're not going to work. They're not going to fly with white working class voters. They're not going to fly in Michigan. And it truly is coming down to that. And I just, I don't have patience for this, for this like, you're our hope now because white people are just like beyond help. And I am not interested in organizing on their behalf, you know? I think the thing that I'm most frustrated about is that conservatives continue to frame the conversation. I can't believe that we have to play defense on ridiculous claims that the Republican Party makes. Like that it's even an argument that we should count every vote. <laughs> That's, I, how, how are there people protesting about whether or not we should count every vote, you know? And then you keep hearing people talk about, well, both sides. I think the people who make me angry are the ones who come at issues that they do not have direct firsthand experience with. They come to these conversations with so much confidence in their position. They are obsessed with using data to come up with solutions, and they are less interested in hearing stories from people who are experiencing it firsthand. People don't seem to care. Like when when my manager told me we have to let you go, there was no acknowledgement of the fact that, hey, you're an immigrant, we're going to work with you. At a company level, people just like think, oh, it's HR's problem. And the HR is like, oh, it's legal's problem or the legal can say, oh, it's the school's problem. And all of them can say, oh, it's it's the it's the problem of the person itself. The industry keeps working, the industry doesn't stop. The pandemic has exposed the cracks in our society. When I think about the question of moving forward, I feel like it's a hard path. Like it's not, you know, this yellow brick road that we could follow. I, I feel like there's a lot of branches that we need to encounter before we fix our divided democracy. I don't want to dismiss the lives of Americans that will get better when President Trump steps down. I can name a dozen things that will immediately improve just by having Joe Biden in the White House. But I think of the 2020 elections and this entire year as a snapshot of where the country is really at. Donald Trump might be the most honest face America's ever put on its problems. The brutality against Black lives, the xenophobia against Asian people, the massive inequity of the pandemic, and the suppression of Black, Brown, immigrant, and working-class votes. They're all continuations of the full American story that's been buried, rewritten, sanitized, erased, and ignored. And often, I have a hard time believing that story's going to change. Some of why I feel this way is honestly just my personality. Some of it is what you just heard on the phone calls that I made. Some of it is the challenges and the lack of care that I've been exposed to as I've tried to get involved with making the Democratic Party more inclusive where I live in Brooklyn. But if I had to name one thing in my life that's most lowered my expectations for American democracy, I'd have to point to my first presidential election in the year 2000. I grew up in Diamond Bar. It's a suburb at the border between Los Angeles, Orange County, and the Inland Empire in Southern California. Over the decades, it's become a majority Asian city. 
And when I was a kid, most of the Asian American families I knew were conservative Protestants who reliably supported the Republican Party or just didn't get involved in politics at all. Here's how my mom puts it. So there's a line, they don't want to cross it. We can, we can just get, did you vote? Or, or who did you vote? You know, we don't talk about it. Because they never complain about the politics right now, what's going on. They don't care about the country. And they don't care about the democracy. They just talk about their own cultures. I spent the first 17 years of my life in that town, including my senior year of high school, when Al Gore was running for president against George W. Bush. Gore lost that election by 537 votes in Florida, even though he received over 547,000 more votes than Bush nationwide. That election was the first to end this way, with the winner of the Electoral College vote actually losing the direct vote of the American people since 1888. And even though my friends and I weren't old enough to vote, this was the first election where we really felt the stakes. I talked about it with my friend Anthony, who I met in junior year. You know, it was like, oh, wow, what a weird system this is <laughs> that we learned in school in our like history class. And now it just shows like, oh, wow, this is totally wrong. What you just described is a process of being a teenager, spending a year in AP government, learning how the system works, and then watching the system work exactly like it was written in the book to fuck everybody over. <laughs> I also compare notes with our friend Amit, who I've known since the fourth grade. I remember being appalled at the Electoral College and the fact that our democracy is not as pure a democracy as we are led to believe. It just completely felt like we got robbed and, and that like democracy was dealt a severe blow and that um, the promise of America was kind of dead. I think it's understandable that a lot of us were like somehow psychologically affected by that and maybe not so wide-eyed and, you know, uh, optimistic about making change or anything like that, you know? But when Anthony, Amit, and I were teenagers, I actually was determined to make change. I was deeply inspired by punk music and counterculture in a way that's never really left me personally. And that's why I asked them to help me start a chapter of the Junior State of America, or JSA for short. It was basically a civics and debate club that we were rushing to get off the ground just as the presidential election was kicking into high gear. My sense memories are of having a classroom to ourself and creating posters, like working with markers and trying to distill like how an election works and what the issues are. I remember the t-shirt. I had a big hand in designing the t-shirt. It was an Altoid can. Yeah, our club t-shirt was a hand-drawn box of Altoids, except in place of the word Altoids where the letter is JSA. And next to that, a silhouette of a person raising their fist into the air. Oh, is that a Rage Against the Machine thing? The logo? I think it's one of those things where we essentially appropriated a pop culture image without having any context or real understanding of the real image, of like the real history of it. Oh, absolutely not, no. <laughs> it was like, oh, that's cool. I think we're all pretty much like Rage Against the Machine fans. We're like, let's use that, use, use that image from the album cover and put it on this t-shirt. We staged a presidential election for our student body where the high school could decide who they wanted to be president. 
You mean like between Gore and Bush? Between Gore, Bush, and Ralph Nader, who was played by me. I remember so little of that, man. <laughs> I called up Nick, one of our other friends, to rehash more of the details. Jonathan O oh is Al Gore, which is pretty fucking good casting. Oh. Annie Shaw was George Bush, and I was Ralph Nader. Right, Nader was there. He's on the back of the shirt. Wait, are you serious? <laughs> okay, so this yeah, quote you still you still have the shirt. I'm wearing it right now. I thought you asked me because you wanted me to wear it. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. Can you turn on your camera? Can I see that? <laughs> Through the webcam, I could see the back of our T-shirt. Uh, it had a quote from Ralph Nader, the Green Party candidate that I had played in our mock presidential election. The quote says, there can be no daily democracy without daily citizenship. Yeah, real foresight and still irrelevant <laughs> 20 years later. God, I don't know where my shirt is. It's a nice shirt. It's like they don't make Hanes beefy tees like this anymore. And then we had the election day and there was essentially like the worst idea I've ever had to have a PA, the school PA brought out there and then essentially do candidate stem speeches to like sway the vote on the on the election day. And it was it was a, it was a rude awakening trying to give <laughs> political speeches to people trying to eat lunch who didn't even realize like what was going on. And then it just like this wall hit me where it's like, oh yeah, no one gives a fuck about any of this. Oh, I see, I see. I think I brought up all these memories because the experience of trying to get my classmates to care about our right to vote, about the issues we couldn't see on TV, about the needs of the powerless, felt like a failure and a letdown. <laughs> just like the real thing. Do you remember counting votes at Jack in the Box? No. <laughs> That's such a fun memory. Why well, I don't want to, <laughs> it could do so much good for you if you've had this memory. It's so fun. <laughs> we have a lot of good memories of Jack in the Box, man. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I miss Jack in the Box so much. Hold up. In case you don't know, Jack in the Box is a fast food chain from California that might be best known for three things. An E. coli outbreak, a really fun corporate mascot during the 90s, and selling two deep-fried hard-shell tacos for 99 cents. It's also where my grandiose teenage mission to bring students into the democratic process to pick a president who would represent us came to an end. We went to Jack in the Box, I think a couple days after the election. I think at the time we were also doing that thing where we bought a big bag of Sun Chips and then would take extra Jack in the Box hot sauce and then <laughs> eat the hot sauce on the Sun Chips. It was like the most cost-effective <laughs> snack. Al Gore won our election by a margin of 20%. It was a direct vote, counted in the corner of a fast food restaurant next to emptied packets of hot sauce. A few days later, the Supreme Court stopped Florida from doing a statewide recount of votes and George W. Bush became the president-elect. When Donald Trump was elected in 2016, I was definitely surprised. But as New Yorkers all around me broke down into tears, stuck post-it notes on the subway station walls, and kicked off four years of reminders that this is not normal or this is not who we are, I never felt that same punch in the gut. Because 17-year-old me had internalized that this is normal. This shows who we are. And 20 years later, I'm still struggling with how to do more than just cast a vote on the right side of history.
Hey, this is Rochelle, community producer here at Self Evident. I'm helping our audience members plan listening parties with their coworkers, classmates, friends, or family. It's a great way to pick up a conversation where our stories leave off and build community in the process. If you'd like to host a listening party, email me, community at selfevidentshow.com, and I'll help you out. Thanks, and hear from you soon. A few of the folks I called after November 3rd are people who live in this country and contribute to it, but aren't allowed to vote. Earlier, my mom brought up how people in smaller states are overrepresented in the Senate. Well, at the same time, there are several million people in places like Puerto Rico, in the Mariana Islands, hell, even in Washington, D.C., who for all intents and purposes are American, but either can't vote for president or aren't represented in Congress the same way as people in our official 50 states, or both. Christelle Aguila, a student at Cal State Los Angeles and a part of our community panel, grew up in American Samoa. The more I started to realize that the reality was I wasn't going to be going home for a long time, it just sucked. Like, I, I'm, I'm still a kid, and as much as I do, like, these kinds of work, I, I just want to see, like, my mom and dad, you know? If you're not familiar, the islands of Samoa were colonized by European and American governments in the 19th century. And American Samoa has been a non-voting, non-citizen U.S. territory for over 100 years. One way for people from American Samoa to become citizens is to become residents of a state. So for Chris to gain the right to vote, to represent the place that she calls home, she had to leave that home. Then, after she moved to L.A. for school and got the naturalization process started, the pandemic shut down travel in and out of American Samoa. Right now, she's staying with an aunt and uncle in Northern California. The island being closed also means that people aren't getting the medical attention they deserve. There's a lot of school issues, a lot of financial issues. People are losing money. And seeing so many people not care about COVID or not take it as seriously when I'm currently living so impacted by it. Like, I can't go home. I can't see my family. I can't see my friends. My mental health is so impaired because I'm so disconnected from the folks and the land and the community that, you know, gave me so much energy. Chris pointed out that the day we were speaking was also the day that the U.S. officially withdrew from the Paris Agreement on climate change. It's one of many decisions that President-elect Biden wants to reverse as soon as he's inaugurated. But even if the president gets us back into that agreement, Congress won't be obligated to meet any of its goals. And without official ratification by the Senate, whoever takes the Oval Office in 2024 could withdraw the U.S. just as easily. Meanwhile, People in the Pacific Islands are staring down die-offs in the oceanic food chain, more intense hurricanes and cyclones, and a relentless rise in sea level that's already caused a handful of small islands to disappear into the ocean. So Chris is frustrated by how her family members won't have an official say in massive problems that acutely impact Pacific Islanders, like climate change and pandemic management. I have to deal with those consequences, whereas there are still so many folks that don't care. Again, they're not voting. They're still partying. Um, They don't think COVID is a serious issue. They think Trump is a great guy. And it's it just all just doubles down on that frustration. And then after seeing those poll results at 2 a.m., I was absolutely crushed because I realized that the country that I had hoped we were living in, maybe that's not the reality yet. It strikes me a lot that the communities who are most directly impacted by the conversation that drives the policies, mm-hmm. they are often not permitted to be in it. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or when they're asked mm-hmm. to be in it, it's like very much like, you know, asking for their vote, but not asking mm-hmm. for them to actually be, be a, a part, part of, of the it. process. Exactly. Folks from these spaces that the U.S. colonized, they weren't meant to vote. They were not meant to have a voice. And in the conversation around climate change, I think that's such a frustrating thing because that is such an impactful issue going on right now. And the fact that so many folks that genuinely really do care about this issue and are very concerned about how um, the presidential election will affect how the U.S. responds to climate change. It's very frustrating that now we don't get a voice as well to you know, say who we want to be spearheading all of this. It's... <laughs> I totally hear you with what you were saying that, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, that I think that's what was really bringing me on the brink of tears was like the reality of who's living in this country and who gets to really dictate how this country gets to look, you know, and operate. How is it that you proceed? Like, what what is it that you do? Because that's something that I'm talking to everybody about. I simply don't think that voting is enough. Mm-hmm. I just think it's it's just one piece. Mm-hmm. So Amen. what is it that you are focused on? What has been your space, I guess, for participating? You know, I'm not Pacific Islander. I'm Filipina ethnically. But because I grew up in American Samoa, I want to see that community get the attention that I know it deserves. And so as a student, what I try to do now is to make space for Pacific Islander voices, um, especially in terms when we're talking about things like climate change or we're talking about these larger systems. There is this very abstract narrative around Pacific Islanders where, you know, finally they're getting recognition in the climate justice movement. However, the only narrative that's really circulating around them is them as being victims when, you know, the reality is Pacific Islanders have, you know, long understood climate change as something that's actually natural. And I think that's also a really big misconception with climate change is, you know, people assume it's something that's so dangerous and catastrophic. And although the consequences of climate change are, Climate change in itself is a very natural process that, you know, Pacific Islander folks and folks all over the world have been adapting to. And the problem is, I think that historically, humans have tried so hard to fight the environment and fight against the environment rather than working with it. It seems especially tough because that's the most abstract thing for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, Not yourself, obviously. (laughs) But how has it been trying to make that something concrete for people to join you and be... Uh really involved in oh my gosh it's incredibly frustrating i am not gonna lie having these conversations with my friends is honestly what pushed me really to you know go into research in the first place next semester what i'm hoping to do is actually organize a panel with pacific islander climate activists from either california or different parts of the u.s to you know come in to cal state la where i go to school and to speak about the work that they do and you know my hope for the panel is to connect pacific islander students that are already on our campus with larger networks of pacific islanders throughout the country and i want folks from my community to feel like they have each other even though they can't really see that directly. What I'm really concerned in is working directly you know with the community and making sure that um, a lot of the voices that were silenced like the voices that are being silenced right now during the election that somehow people are still hearing their voices. Chris is a good example of Americans who have to push for change and do a lot of that work outside the electoral process because they have no other choice. The next listener I spoke to does have the status to vote, but he's been deeply troubled by the polarization that's trickled down from the two major parties and by all the pressure his friends have put on him to vote for Joe Biden. I am feeling distrustful 
and confused and also desperate. That's Carl Christian Flores. He's in his last year of college at USC. I'm feeling desperate because as a young American, I sort of need guidance and to be educated by a voice that I can trust. And I kind of have a hard time finding that, especially on the internet, but also just people around me. And I will say, I haven't told this to anyone because I was always scared to say it, but it is so shocking because freshman year of college, I would meet people who were pro-Trump in my college dormitory. We would just talk in the dining halls and people would be like, oh yeah, you know, I think I think Trump is so cool. Sure, he said some racist things, but uh, I really, really like how he's not a politician. And those same people, I swear to God, James, those same people are on Zoom right now acting as Trump haters and, and liberals and Democrats saying, fuck Trump. And no one should vote for an immoral president like Trump. I'm just so shocked that people are hiding themselves because they don't want to be bashed on by everyone else in the country. Carl goes to a prestigious private university where he pours his energy into theater and poetry. But he has a perspective on living in America that most of the students around him don't. And it's deeply affected how much faith he can set aside for politicians. I come from a low-income background, single-parent household, went to school up and down California, renting rooms, pretty much lived 21 years without money. My family was raised on food stamps. How do you feel the life that you've lived shapes how you see our democracy and where you fit into all these conversations that have been yeah. all over the place yeah. for the past several years? Yeah, so it shapes a lot. My father was a meth addict and left my mom and me and my sister when I was three years old. And my mom had to drop us to school and she had trouble paying rent and she was finding jobs and getting laid off of jobs and had a hard time. And so we were on food stamps and I didn't know how big of a deal that was until later when I just realized that every food that I ate was never hot food. It was always canned or groceries. When I was in college, it was a huge, uh, a huge eye-opener because my rooms were clean and everywhere I where I lived either had rats cockroaches or ants there was just infested with insects and so I'd be like wow this is this is what a room could be it was so different so having that experience I care about people reducing families and individuals who are on food stamps as lazy or pathetic when there are so many circumstances that fall into a person's situation. And that's what I learned from volunteering in homeless shelters. For the longest time, I've been going to food banks and tutoring low-income kids, and I know their stories. I know when their parents were on drugs. I know if they just suddenly lost their job. I know if they have mental health problems. I've seen it. Carl volunteers for his community, and he accepts a deep level of community support to get by. But he doesn't think of himself as politically active, and he had a really hard time voting for either candidate in the general election. If you voted for a candidate, you were selecting a candidate. To vote is to choose, because when you're avoiding Trump, you are voting for Biden, and then you're voting for a person who does X, Y, and Z. 
And so that's why the day, literally the day before elections, I didn't want to vote because I didn't want to contribute to that. And it sounds lazy. It sounds com- complacent and it kind of sounds overprivileged. And I see all that and I recognize all that. But what was basically in my head was just a guilt that if I were to vote for Biden, I would be voting for someone who I didn't agree with. And what makes it even more hard, lastly, is that I would, of course, rather have Biden president than Trump president. That is no question. And people are like, oh, duh, idiot. Then you got to vote for you got to vote for Biden if you would rather have him. You know, it's just obvious mathematic. Duh. But I still didn't want to because of that obscure truth, because of that that weird integrity that I would just feel guilty for. So I, I wrote in Bernie Sanders. Well, you are in California, so there were many other things to vote on. Oh, right. Yeah, there were all those propositions. And yeah, I, vote, I voted for that. What do you think it would take for you to feel represented? When I look at, oh, who is going to be the president of America? They have to care about health care. They have to care about students who just want to get an education someone like AOC or Bernie Sanders, or honestly, my favorite politician of all, Jacinda Ardern. Jacinda Ardern pays attention to her country. She understands what's fair. She's articulate. Even in interviews, she will say, you know what, I didn't answer your question, but I'll answer it next time. And she shops at Target. She'll get her groceries at Walmart or or whatever, New Zealand supermarkets, and she's just an ordinary citizen. But I'm wondering, are you not able to see that more immediately around you? just locally? No, I don't. Maybe it has something to do with being a student and not being satisfied with what we're taught in school. Maybe that has made me a little cynical towards our leaders. You are coming back repeatedly to, you want to be able to make a choice of a person and you are inspired by certain people and disgusted by others and distrustful of others. Do you see your participation in this democracy going beyond just picking people? That's a really good question. Do you not perceive uh, you going to the food bank? Do you not perceive you volunteering or tutoring as political? No, I've never thought of it politically. I've never thought of it politically. When people tell me that the 2020 election is the most important election of our lifetimes, I agree with them. But what I'm waiting to find out is what people will do after the votes are counted, whether we're ready to stop acting like consumers of democracy and more like daily citizens. And as the votes started piling up for Joe Biden, I started feeling more anxious about that uncertainty than the uncertainty around the election itself. When the press did call the election for Biden, I stepped outside for a minute to see folks in my neighborhood dancing and cheering in the streets. I tried to give myself permission to accept some of that relief, to let out some of my disbelief in change, and to hope that all of us who showed up so vocally to vote Donald Trump out of office will keep going and won't disappear behind the less shameful, more recognizable face of our new president-elect.
My last conversation in the days right after the election was one that I didn't even plan on having. And it felt like a message that history, like elections, does work in cycles, but also that a cycle isn't necessarily the same thing as a repeat. After I got off the phone with Carl, I saw an email from Joshua Chow, an editor at my old high school newspaper. I'd asked him if the junior state chapter that I'd started in 2000 was still a thing. He wrote back with a phone number for Ming Yu Liu. I am currently 16 years old, and in JSA, I mainly play the role of JSA chair of Diamond Rock High School Debate Club. It turns out that students at my old high school have kept JSA alive for 20 years. And right off the bat, I could tell that this new generation of the club is way more thoughtful and way more capable of getting students engaged in political action, not just for the presidential race, but wherever government affects our daily lives. And by the way, the Junior State of America is a nonpartisan organization that welcomes all political affiliations. But Mingyu and I are both Asian American Democrats, and all that background is going to show in what you're about to hear. The map right now, it's a win for Joe Biden, but is it a win for Democrats? I would say no. The Democrats have been doing a pretty lousy job, in my opinion, at reaching out to certain key demographics. For example, you have Latino reach out. And how do you relate to what's going on today and what has transpired as an Asian American? We really helped flip a couple of states. I mean, Georgia has, what, 4.1% Asian Americans? And Georgia has flipped by about 7,000 votes. So every single vote from Asian Americans has counted. It's not just African Americans who've helped propel Biden to victory in Georgia. It's you have Hispanics, you have white suburban women, and most importantly, you have the Asian voting demographic that is becoming an up-and-coming political behemoth in American politics. And do you feel like you're a part of that? Do you feel empowered? I mean, I definitely do. I've worked on the campaign. This also in C-39. I've interned for Gil Cisneros. Gil Cisneros does represent a district that has a heavily sizable Asian American population. And for politicians to actually acknowledge that, yes, this is a demographic that exists. And yes, we should reach out to them. One reason why I think I'm having all these conversations following the election is because I'm very uneasy about how much we can accomplish in the next year, in the next two years, in the next four years. And so I'm having conversations with people to imagine, you know, what is it going to take and and what gives you the motivation? I think one of our first big gains in JSA was actually interviewing a local water board candidate. His name is Kevin Hayakawa, and he is, he ran actually one for one at Valley Water Board. And so it was really interesting to interview someone who's actually, you know, Asian himself, and he was from the area. So I think that if we try to find ways to engage Asian Americans, I think we could potentially increase civic participation and JSA participation in Diamond Bar. It's something that will probably reach the heydays of it was back in your era. So when you think about previous generations of students or previous years of students and knowing that JSA had existed in the past, like what do you imagine that to be? I definitely think that those students, there were probably a lot more of them. <laughs> there was definitely a lot more of them. I think that JSA in, in its heyday was probably really active on campus. And I think that there were a lot more students being connected to being civically engaged. And that's something I hope as JSA chair, along with my co-presidents and the amazing officer board we have, that we'll be able to bring it back to its heyday, or at least try to and make a gallant effort at attempting to do so. How did you and the other folks in the leadership choose to engage classmates around this election? We definitely came in with a lot of limitations. We actually planned to do a lot of things during this 
school year, but unfortunately because of coronavirus, we're planning to host a mock election, which would have been amazing, but then that was called off because it's virtual. We plan to do a voter registration drive. That was scrapped because it's virtual. We really wanted to host a mock election because that's the best way. Getting young people to experience what's it like to vote. Um, so I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> okay. So I, I actually don't know. You're describing the heyday of JSA. I actually don't know what that is because I started this club in my senior year of high school. I was motivated by the fact that this was the year 2000 and there was an election coming up. Yep. And so we did the mock election. We put so much into trying to bring this election to the campus and get students to express their voice in it, express their interest in it. And what I largely experienced was that nobody was interested and it was extremely frustrating. And so at the end of the year, we passed on the club to whoever was up for taking it over. And then I just never thought about it again. I don't know whether there's ever been a heyday. I don't know whether it got more engaged, whether there was a big amount of activity because I wasn't there to see it. So I was, I was surprised to know that, uh, you are here today. <laughs> <laughs> have you thought that more Asian Americans and more students in Dimeborough high school have actually been more aware of political issues and have been engaged since the time you left? I had no way of telling. Um, I would assume no. I think if I had any default assumptions, it would be that it would just stay either an apolitical or a Republican environment. I think it's almost the opposite now. We had a BLM protest and we had a huge crowd. We had protests in Chino Hills. There's still, this election is still pretty contentious, I'm not going to lie. And this first year of Biden's presidency will also be a very contentious presidency. So I think that one thing that's changed maybe during your time was that Asian Americans and students of Dunmore High School generally are forming opinions. They have their opinions. It's just they may not necessarily want to volunteer. They may not necessarily want to vote because more people are engaged just, you know, on making Instagram stories that say vote Biden instead of Trump or vote Trump because X, Y, and Z. I just don't think they're actually getting their boots on the ground and making calls that we need. You're describing an environment where it sounds like people are not as civically engaged as you would want. Do I have that right? Oh, yeah. I've If Dimebar High School engage, student engagement was truly up, I would see a lot more Dimebar High School students at campaign events or volunteering or phone banking. And I just don't see in the numbers. But we still have some very contentious seats in Diamond Bar. And we still have some very contentious elections on the state level. And I think that if we can connect Diamond Bar High School students who are interested in politics who may not necessarily know where to volunteer to go and volunteer for these campaigns, I think it's a first step to putting them in the pipeline that eventually leads to more civic engagement. I mean, that's mainly our goal. Well, I have I have one thing to say in response to that, which is we never did anything that you're describing. We never had any contact with local elected officials. We didn't create those access points. We did not phone bank for candidates. You know, we did the mock election, but besides that, it, it was kind of insular. And that was um, a shortcoming. So I, I'm just happy to hear that any of that is happening. The fact that that's even a goal is is a big deal to me because getting people to do those same things doesn't get easier after school. I think it actually gets harder because there's always something, some pressing need that people have to prioritize. And 
because I'm actually still dealing with the same thing today. You are miles ahead of what we ever did when we started. So I think your compass is set. Sounds, it sounds great. I mean, thank you so much for just giving me that piece of encouragement. I, I mean, we thought we were in a bummer hole coming into 2020 because we were faced with a very declining membership. So I guess just thank you for all the encouragement. I think, I think you'll see a lot more from Diamond or JSA now. <laughs> Today's episode was produced by me and edited by Julia Shu. We were mixed by Timothy Lou Lee, and our theme music is by Dorian Love. Thanks to Anthony, Amit, Nick, Chris, Carl, Mingyu, and of course, my mom, Myungbu, for being part of today's show. And big thanks to Joshua Chow for helping me confirm that I've done at least one good thing in my life. I also got a shout out to everyone who hopped on the phone with me while we were waiting for election results to come in. That's Alex Laughlin, Dorian Love, Justine Lee, Melissa Sebastian, Marissa Goeaton, Rachel Ramirez, and Sid Gupta. And if you want to be called randomly by a self-evident producer asking how you voted and whether you can give us all hope for the future of democracy, you can join our community panel at selfevidentshow.com slash participate. Self-Evident is a Studio to Be production made with support from our listeners. This is James Boo filling in for Kathy Airway. And if you hear someone accusing you of being a communist because you want Medicare for all, just have them call my mom. Oh, they're, they're the communists. You know what, the communists? I came from South Korea. You think it's communist? Stupid electoral system. Until next time, keep on sharing Asian America's stories.